Hey, y'all. Um, this is such a weird uh, way to give a sermon. Uh, I've been trying to think through like how, how to do this, how to do this well, how to do this in a way that's engaging. Um, as you can see, I wore my, uh, my Fred Rogers sweater, trying to channel some of that calmness, uh, that, that, that peace, that serenity that you often get uh, when you watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, but yeah, things are so weird and things are so different now. And um, you know, I've never been much of a worrier. Um, I've always had a it'll work out kind of mentality, hence the six kids. Um, but, but about two weeks ago, I started getting these pits in, in my stomach uh, and, and they wouldn't go away for like half an hour, an hour. Uh, I, would, I would have this uneasiness in my mind uh, that I couldn't shake, I couldn't distract myself from. Um, I don't know, maybe this is what withdrawal from Walt Disney World feels like, but I, I just, I can't shake it. Um, and I was talking about this with a friend, and, and he said to me, Zach, that's anxiety. I've I mean, I've never struggled with anxiety. And listen, if you struggle with anxiety, if this is something that's been part of your life, most of your life, I just want to say to you, I'm so sorry, because this is the worst. And I'm really sorry if ever in a conversation or, or maybe in a sermon I've ever implied that that you should just be able to shake it off, that you should just be able to trust God and, and everything feel better. Uh, because I've been trying to shake it off for the last two weeks and it won't let me go. Um, I recently listened to a sermon by Tim Keller because uh, preachers need preachers too. And, uh, and it's a really good sermon. It's titled, uh, Praying Our Fears. And it's easy to find online if you want to give it a listen as well. Uh, but he does a really good job of painting a picture showing the difference between fear and anxiety. And he says, imagine that you are on a highway. You're walking across a highway and you look over in the distance and you see a car kind of speeding towards you. You immediately kind of focus on the car. You focus on how far you have to go to get to the safe side of the road. And then you run. You just, you just sprint. He said, that's fear. You felt fear. And that fear moved you to action. Now, when you get on the safe side of the road and the car speeds past you, you might come, uh, you might be made aware of a, of a kind of faintness or a hollowness in the pit of your stomach. You might find yourself unable to move. That's anxiety. Fear sped you up across the highway. Fear sped you up across the highway and anxiety has you stuck on the side of the road. A counselor here in Orlando, Aaron Moore, says fear is caused by an event. Anxiety is an event. Anxiety, unlike fear, is not specific. It's, it's generalized. You, you can't really understand where it's coming from or, or what it's attached to or, or why it's happening or exactly what's causing it. But with fear, you know, the car's coming. Get out of the way. But with anxiety, you don't know exactly what's wrong. You just know that something is wrong wrong, that something isn't right. Y'all, something isn't right. But that's always been the case. It's been that way since Genesis 3. Something isn't right. And for some reason, this current something is affecting me in ways that I've never been affected before. And maybe you too. So for you lifelong sufferers of anxiety, I hope you will welcome some of us new sufferers into your club. You know, I, uh, 
I was in St. Augustine with my family when I started noticing the anxiety. I would wake up at about 4.30 in the morning, which is not normal uh, for me, especially now that all the babies are sleeping through the night. Um, and, uh, and I couldn't go back to sleep, uh, so I would, just, I would just go for a walk. My parents had a house in the old part of St. Augustine, close to the fort, um, and so I would get up at 4.30, 5 o'clock, and I would just start walking those old streets. Um, and, you know, there was, there was something about walking those old streets and seeing those old buildings that had been there for hundreds of years. Uh, there was some comfort in knowing, you know, there's a lot worse things that people have, have suffered through and come out on the other side. But for me, the real comfort really has come through the Psalms. And I know you're like, Zach, you're a pastor, like that's a very, of course, of course scripture is what brought you comfort. But I have to be honest with you, I've never been a Psalms person. I've never really enjoyed the Psalms. I don't really read them that often. I, I like stories. Give me something from Genesis, like Jacob and Esau, or some other Old Testament kind of crazy story, or, or something from the life of Jesus. I love the way God compels me through the stories he's given me. So I'm always gonna be drawn to a story. And, and you probably have picked up on that uh, if you've been a part of Summit, because I, I tend to go to the scriptures that, that are story-based. Uh, but I found myself lately so drawn to the Psalms. Psalm 30, verse 5, was on my mind every morning during those walks. Uh, St. Augustine isn't a big city, so when it shuts down at night, it's pretty dark. There's not a whole lot of street lights. There's not a lot of lights on buildings. Uh, and so at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, it, it's pitch black out there. But y'all, the minute that first beam of light would break through the horizon, something in me would change. And if we're friends on Instagram, you saw every sunrise that I saw. I know I overgram, I'll work on it. Uh, but every time that sun appeared, I couldn't help but think, Psalm 35, sadness may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We're going to spend the summer studying Psalms, and we planned this a long time ago. This is already in the works. But I thought we'd get a, a head start uh, today with the psalm that I've been reading and rereading and praying and meditating on for the past two weeks, Psalm 13. It's a, it's a short but a very powerful psalm because in it, so much changes. Um, there's so much uh, extraordinary transformation of the psalmness during the, the six verses. The psalmist is David. When Charles Spurgeon preached this psalm, he titled his sermon, Howling Changed to Singing. In our self-help age, we could title this sermon from howling to singing in less than six verses. So let's look at it together. But before uh, we do that, uh, would you pray with me? Father God, we know that there is nothing that we are experiencing right now that is outside of your view, outside of your control. Father God, we thank you that there's no perspiration on your upper lip. Father God, we thank you that you promise us that no matter what, you will be near us. So even though this is a weird way to do church, even though this is a weird way to worship you, we know that you're pleased with this. Father, I ask that you would, uh, you would come and you would speak and you would speak uh, to each of us. That you would speak specifically what each of our hearts most need to hear today in this very moment. 
And Father, I surrender myself to you. I surrender my heart and my words, the things I've thought about and studied and prepared. I surrender all of it to you to be used however you so choose. But please, Father, by your Spirit, come and speak to us, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's read Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. This is God's word. So how did this howler become a singer? By praying his pain, praying for perspective, and praying God's praise. Pain, perspective, praise. Okay, I heard you groan. I can hear you. I know you don't think I can hear you. I know I can hear you. I know the alliteration. And some of you, maybe you don't know me. Maybe a friend told you, hey, you should check this out. And you're like, all right, I'm out with this guy. But listen, sometimes the alliteration just presents itself. And what can you do? The only thing you can do is press ahead with it. But I promise you that I won't make it a practice. Praying your pain, praying for perspective, praying God's praise. David begins this psalm in a lot of pain. In fact, four times he begins with how long. In the original language, in the Hebrew, it's ad anah, which literally means until where? Until where? David starts his prayer really going at God, and he's not being subtle about it at all. How long? Until where? At Anah. But not only that, this is God's inspired word. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says back to God, Ad Hanah. These are God-inspired words. We have a God who is, who is not only okay with us saying to him how long or until where, but we actually have a God who gives us the words ad anah. So right now you might have fears. You might have doubts. You might have frustrations. You might have pain. You might have worries. And God says, say anah, ad anah. And God says, say ad anah to me. That's what he says. He says, yell, come at me, shake your fist, cry out until where, how long? You know the story of Job? Job was a, was a man who loved God and he tried very hard to live an obedient life before God. But Satan comes to God and he says, you know, Job only obeys you. He only loves you because you bless him. You take all that blessing away, you allow him to suffer, man, he'll turn on you so quickly. 
So God allows Satan to bring suffering to Job. Now, y'all listen. I want to love God and be obedient to God so much, but just slightly less than Job. Because Job, for 37 chapters, goes through one tragedy after the next. And although sometimes Job will, will say something like, I know my Redeemer lives. That's Job 19.25. Most of the time in those 37 chapters, he's just complaining and he's crying out and he's angry and he's shaking his fists to the heavens. He spends a lot of time telling God about how obedient he is and, and how good he is and how God's really giving him a raw, raw deal with all of this. But you know, at the end of those 37 chapters, and after God gives one of the greatest responses of all time, beginning with, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? God then looks at Job and he says, you've done good. Now, if you're reading it, you're thinking, what? What do you mean he's done good? He spent the entire time complaining and crying out and, and doubting and, and being mad and throwing the fist up towards the heavens. You're thinking, what, what in the world? But God says, good job. How is that? Ad anah. God not only gives us permission to come to him with all our feelings, but he instructs us to do so. Job did a good job because he took everything he was feeling and he laid it right at God's feet. He took everything that he was feeling and he didn't just go to his friends and talk about it and he didn't just internalize it. My friend Kaylee Newkirk uh, says that worry is just praying to oneself. Uh, he didn't do that. He didn't just keep it all to himself. He took everything he was feeling and he laid it out before God and God said, good job, Job. You've done good. You've spoken the truth. Listen to me, this is so important. There is no feeling that you have right now that if you laid it before God would make him angry with you. None. In fact, any feeling you have, if you lay it before God, it would please him. Speak the truth. Tell him. Cry out how long, however you feel. If you're frustrated because this is your senior year and, and you're not going to have prom and, and you don't know about graduation, I get that. I remember being 17. I remember how important those events were that last year of high school. If you're frustrated about that, add a nah. I know a lot of you that are, that are young, you teenagers, I know that there's so much that you're probably looking forward to this spring with athletics and, and maybe your school musical or, or just so many things that, that you had looking forward to experiencing and now you just feel like your life's on hold or, or you're away from your friends for so long and you're worried, will you even still be friends when this is all said and done? Add a nah. Or for you college students, especially those of you who are supposed to be graduating this spring, you've worked so hard. It makes sense that you're mad. Add anah. If you're scared because the people you love are at risk and it doesn't seem like it's very loving of God to allow this, add anah. If you're a health worker or if you work at the grocery store, 
and every day you're fearful because you're going into an environment where you don't know if you're going to get this virus. Add anah. If, you, if you're having doubts right now that God even exists, because if God really is the great physician, then why is this even an issue? Add anah. If you're worried about your job or your rent or your, or your health, add anah. God gives us these words, and words help, but they also aren't enough. Words aren't enough to get you through the next 24 hours without yelling at your kids or, or get you away from your phone that you've been glued to for the last week or two weeks or, 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 or allow you the freedom to look away from your portfolio or even to, to calm the fear you feel about this unseen enemy. Words aren't enough. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God's Word shows us that He understands God, God understands that words aren't enough. God knows how we speak when we are desperate. We have a God who himself came into this world and we're told became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he even cries out and he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, sorrowful even to the point of death. It's more than just words. On the cross, Jesus spoke, Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So not only did God give us incredible words expressing pain in the Psalms, he himself would one day speak those words. Think about this. God knows what it feels like to look up to the heavens and feel nothing. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus spoke Psalm 22 on the cross, but we believe he was on the cross for six hours. Do you know there must have been so many Psalms that came to his mind during that gruesome, horrific time? And my guess is he thought about Psalm 13. Maybe sometime later today, just go back and reread the whole psalm, Psalm 13, with that in mind. This is God's Word for us, but also for Him. Y'all, that's a game changer for me. As, I, as, I've been, as I've been studying Psalm 13, as I've been reading it and rereading it and meditating on it, that, that, that's, that's a huge change for me. Uh, that, that's the way you go from being a howler to a singer. You pray your pain knowing he knows your pain. Which leads us to praying for perspective. I think I told you all this story before, uh, but I, I love this story. Oliver, my oldest, when he was little, when he was probably 
four or five, um, we lived in a townhouse in Baldwin Park that was right by the bike path. And he loved that bike path because for him, it was like he could line up all his cars, he could go on his tricycle and be, you know, and, and not worry about, you know, other cars coming by and, uh, and running them over. And he just, he loved the bike path. And one day in particular, he had set up all his cars and he was on there and he was having just the best time. Um, and a real biker, you know, with the spandex and everything came zooming by and, and he almost hit Oliver. And he was so, you know, the, the, he was so angry. And so over his shoulder, he yells, this is a bike path. And Oliver yells back at him, just his face lit up. I know it's a bike path and it's awesome. They had totally different perspectives. David, in this psalm, after expressing all of his pain, says in verse 3 and 4, let me, let me read that again. He says, Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. After expressing his feelings, after crying out, Ad Hanah, David realizes if he's going to be able to move forward at all, he's going to have to have a change of perspective. He's going to have to be able to see things from a different angle, to see things from a much bigger or broader perspective. Because for him, all he can see is the fact that his enemies are going to rejoice when he falls. That's all he can think about. That's what's, that's what's on the forefront of his mind. And maybe for you, all you can think about is the things you're missing out on or what you've lost or what you think you will lose or, or how this is only the beginning of, of, of the bad stuff or what, whatever your mind is completely focused on, maybe you can't get out of it. David knew he couldn't get out of it, so what does he do? He turns to God and he says, give light to my eyes. What's he asking for? He's asking for God's eyes. He's asking God to give him eyes to see things like God sees them. Psalm 139 verse 12 says, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Even in the midst of horrendous darkness, God is light. And we also know that God in all circumstances is working together good for us. I used, to, I used to apologize every time I quoted Romans 8.28 um, because there is, you have to be careful saying that because it can feel trite and it can feel Christianese and it can feel like an easy answer. Uh, but I'm not going to apologize anymore because it's true. If it's not true, then what are we doing? Like, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Kaylee recently, it was a couple weeks ago, uh, in, in her sermon on chastity, talked about the life of Joseph, um, Joseph from Genesis. Uh, and it's really a, a great, compelling story. Joseph was this arrogant young man. Uh, he was hated by his brothers because of his arrogance and also because he was his father's favorite. Um, and in their anger, they threw him in a pit. Then they decided, no, we can make some money off him. So they sold him into slavery. He ended up in Egypt as a slave. Um, and you know Joseph the whole time was praying and saying, God, please help me escape. But not only did he not escape, he ended up getting accused falsely of assaulting his master's wife and then thrown into prison, which I assume would have been a life sentence. You know, David, not David, you know that Joseph was praying and crying out and, and saying, God, this is so unjust. This is not fair. Write this injustice. And he didn't. 
In fact, Joseph was in there for a long time. But then because of some unique circumstances, Joseph ended up getting out of prison. He ended up rising to to being second in command of of Egypt. He, He was the prime minister of Egypt. And it was his leadership that ended up saving thousands of lives. It was his leadership that ended up saving his own family's lives, the, the family members that had, had betrayed him. Now, do you think that Joseph's suffering had anything to do with the man that Joseph became? How can an arrogant young man become a wise leader, a wise leader who not only brought about social justice, but also led with forgiveness? Most of the people... Uh, when you ask them what they needed for success, they'll point back to something, some kind of painful struggle, some kind of suffering, maybe even some tragedy. And even though none of them will say that that they are thankful for the tragedy itself or the suffering itself, every single one of them will say, I would never want to go back to being the person I was before it. With time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the suffering and the pain that we experience. If we can do that, finite and limited as we are, from God's vantage point, couldn't there be good reasons for all suffering? One of the, uh, the best things I've ever heard when it comes to having this kind of perspective on suffering uh, comes from Tim Keller who said this. He says, if you have a God who is great enough and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped all the evil and suffering in the world, then you have, at the very same time, a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. David knows he can't see beyond his circumstances. He knows it. He's not going to minimize or deny his feelings and his pain But he can go to God and he can ask, give me eyes to see like you see. Show me something. Show me anything that will allow me to move forward. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe you can't see anything beyond your immediate circumstances. Express it. Let him know. Tell the truth about exactly how you feel about everything that's happening. And then turn to him and say, okay, give me eyes to see. David knew his understanding was was finite and limited, so he turned to an infinite and all-powerful God and said, help me understand. Give me something. Give me anything so I can move forward. But y'all, again, there's more. So what if God has a good reason for allowing the coronavirus to wreak havoc, not, on just on, not just on us, but on the whole world? What if he has a good reason for, uh, for you losing your job or, or for, for you getting really sick or for you struggling with loneliness or anxiety or depression? Just because God might have a good reason and just because he works all things together for good, including evil and suffering, just because that's all true, that still makes me angry. That still doesn't allow God off the hook for all the world's evil and suffering. He's God. He could do anything. He could do it another way. And y'all, he did. Imagine 
purposely stepping into an infected environment in which you would, would absorb in yourself the deadly sickness so that those who were sick might be made well. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 54 says, Surely he took up our pain and he bore our sufferings. By his wounds we are healed. In Jesus Christ, God deliberately put himself on the hook for human suffering. But not only that, in Jesus Christ, God became infected. He stepped into our mess knowing it was going to get all over him, knowing that ultimately it was going to kill him. So maybe you and I won't know the reason for every painful experience. And maybe we won't be able to find the silver lining in this pandemic in a way that justifies all that's been lost. But when we shake our fist at God, which remember, he tells us is okay to do, we're shaking our fist at a fellow sufferer. We don't have a God who stands outside of the pain and the suffering, but we have a God who became the pain and the suffering. So we pray our pain. We tell him, knowing that he understands. We pray for perspective, for eyes to see things like God sees them. And then eventually, we choose to pray God's praise. We choose to go from howling to singing. David's circumstances don't change during the course of this psalm. But he does. In verse 5, David chooses to sing, but I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. David hopes for what you and I can know. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. It's done. He did that. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also cried out, It is finished. With those words, Jesus declares forever his love for us, an unfailing love that you and me, no matter what we do, no matter what, what we've done, no matter what we'll do in the future, Jesus on the cross, when he says it is finished, it is done, he is telling us that there is nothing that will now separate us from his love. His love is unfailing, so unfailing that he would absorb your infection so that you would be clean. 2 Corinthians 5.21, my favorite verse, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, to become our sin. Why? So that through believing in him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. You and I might be forever declared clean. You and I might be forever declared loved. So when the list of things that we're uncertain about continues to get longer and longer and longer, the cross says we can be sure that God loves us. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. But the story doesn't end with the cross. Easter's coming. David, in verse 6, he concludes this psalm with, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. I, I've thought for a long time, as in, over the last two weeks as I've meditated on this psalm, 
I assumed that David was just going back and, and he had remembered some of God's faithfulness to him. Maybe remembered uh, the defeat of Goliath, or maybe he was even thinking about the faithfulness of God throughout history, uh, his faithfulness to Abraham and his faithfulness to Jacob and Joseph. Um, and and y'all, there's not probably a better way to spend our time uh, than going back and remembering God's faithfulness in the past. If, you, if you're with your family, that'd be a great thing to do this week. Like, Take some time to sit down. Maybe tell your kids stories that they haven't heard about how God provided or how God was faithful in times where you were uncertain. Or, or if you have a roommate or if you're meeting as a connect group virtually, like y'all should take some time to just talk about and remember God's faithfulness. But one commentator I read made a really interesting observation. He said, when, when David said, for he has been good to me, he is using the past tense. But this commentator said, David wasn't referring to past events, but rather he was speaking in the past tense because he was certain that one day he will have such a song to sing when he looks back on all of this. The commentator called it prophetic perfect tense. David was in real anguish, but he also had real certainty that one day he would be lifted out. Hundreds of years after David, the Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We will be lifted out. God has been good to us. So we, today, can choose to sing God's praise.